And we are live with our 28th episode of Absolute Absec. <clears throat> I'm Ken Johnson, or at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again. Tonight, we are joined by Asta Singhal, who is, <clears throat> so she's the engineering manager at, of application security at Netflix. She is a co-organizer of OWASP AppSec USA, uh, co-organizer of the OWASP Bay Area, uh, oh, OWASP chapter, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm getting all tongue-tied, uh -huh. um, has worked at ISEC, Salesforce, Netflix, um, just, I mean, her background's amazing. So we, and we're going to cover that tonight. We're going to get to know Asta and find out, you know, her origin story and all that. But uh, before we, and sorry, Asta, say hi to everyone. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, this is Asta. Excited to be here. We're definitely excited to have you. Um, Seth, before we get into it, was there anything we needed to mention? Um, anything coming up? Anything that we needed to, to, to talk about? I don't, I don't think so. Right. We'll, we'll get to the locations that will be um, here shortly or after the end of the podcast. Um, I did want to say hello to Asta. Uh, Asta and I have run circles around each other for a few years. Um, we were talking before the podcast started about, you know, we know each other, but I don't think we've actually ever formally met. So, you know, virtually meeting one more time is always a good thing. Um, but yeah, Ken, I don't think there's anything else that's uh, that we need to mention here at the beginning of the podcast. We'll get into it as we as we wrap things up today. Cool. And as always, feel free to send your questions to absoluteabsec at gmail.com or hit us up in the Slack channel if you don't know how to get to it. It's absoluteabsec.com and there's an invite link. And then you can just, all, of course, ask questions in the YouTube live chat. So with all that information out there, um, let's get right into it. So Asta, can you... Obviously, I, I gave a little bit of your background, but we'd like to really expand, you know, find out more and find out like how you got into this field, what brought you to ISEC, because that was really interesting. That I believe you did um, you that that appeared to be where it started for you, but may, um, maybe even further back, if you could let folks know like just how you got into security, what made you want to do that, all you know, those types of things. Um, your, your yeah, definitely. Definitely. So uh, currently, I lead application security uh, here at Netflix, uh, which is a lot of fun. But for me, I think the first time I even thought about having a career in security was while I was getting my undergraduate degree in computer science. And then I took class um, just because it sounded interesting. It was like introduction to security protocols. And then it was really as basic as Alice wants to talk to Bob and they want to be able to do it securely and make it happen. And it's really kind of just the fundamental like protocol stuff around like understanding secure communication and all of that sort of stuff. And you got to both build and break protocols in that class. And to me, that was just amazing because I was like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe like this could be a thing you could do in your life for a career sort of thing. Uh, and then I ended up doing a lot of research with my professor in that field uh, as my BTEC thesis. And after that, I kind of realized that I liked building things, but I liked this a lot better. So I ended up applying uh, for a master's program in security uh, at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And that's kind of how I moved to here from India and uh, didn't really like look back since then in terms of the field of security. Um, uh, in school, I definitely learned a bunch of different things in terms of, you know, like network analysis or web security or, you know, more like protocol stuff and everything. But uh, for me, during my internship at ISAC, like the web security stuff was the most interesting to me uh, and decided to sort of end up in that space um, after uh, I graduated. That's impressive. I mean, that, that is incredibly impressive. And so... So going back to it, so you were saying that they, and I did notice, I did notice you've done quite a bit of product security. So, which I think kind of ties into what you said there when you said, you know, you, you like to build uh, as well as break. So on the product security side, was that sort of your outlet for like, you know, I want to build security related functionality um, and, and that allowed you to kind of go there and do that or... Um, 
Yeah, I think one of the things I like, I really enjoyed sort of the consulting experience working at ISA Partners because, you know, I was getting to work with all of these really, really smart security engineers that were breaking all of these products all over the place. You know, really anything uh, that you can think of in the Bay Area, uh, you got to work on those projects. But really the thing that I didn't like was you would hand over a report and be like, all right, see you later. And then a lot of times I'd see, you know, you go back to the same project and then you, the first thing you do is you go back and try all of the things you found last time. And that just didn't seem like a way to, you know, like move the needle forward on actually, you know, building better products and building more secure products. And that's why I decided to go in like a more embedded, you know, your job is to actually help someone learn how to do this right and you know make better products that are secure uh, by default or uh, are thinking about security while they're being built and then in that case you're not just the throw it over the fence person but actually get to be a part of that process and really like one of the most rewarding things for me uh, early on used to be the fact that it's like when a developer would sort of have the you know aha moment of oh my god that seems like it shouldn't be okay and then they would like reach out to us and be like I'm working on this thing, like, that doesn't seem right. So, you know, when you can get someone to actually get to that point and think about security, that I just really liked that. That's, uh, that, yeah, that's an interesting point. About that. I mean, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, the, the fact that you've made that kind of jump from the security consulting space back into product security, I, like, we, we've had a discussion a couple of times about how the industry has evolved. But I, I definitely remember the same uh, feelings that that you had, right, or that uh, like I had similar feelings at Fishnet, right? Those year-to-year -year assessments that we would do, that the first thing that you would pull up was the report from the previous year, and you'd go test and find out that eighty percent of them were still a problem, right? Um, so it was, you know, it was very much a all right. This is definitely a compliance check that the companies are looking at, not necessarily a security activity. I guess is the the only way that I could say it. Um, but we've all, signed, all, all kind of evolved since then, right? I can's at GitHub uh, on the product security side. You're at Netflix now, obviously, on the product security side. Uh, it, is, it is definitely kind of a more rewarding fill uh, for someone that's been in development in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, sorry, Ken, were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, I mean, actually, are you on pro product security? I mean, I, I'm not so, sure how much your team does for, 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 I actually, I have no idea. Yeah, I think different people use the term product security differently. So I think um, definitely doing security uh, services for the Netflix product is a part of our charter, but okay. we're not actually like building the security features for the product itself. We're helping secure the product. We're helping secure other applications that Netflix uses to run its business. And then the same is true for like my role at Salesforce as well, where it's like I work pretty closely with, say, you know, the CRM product teams that are trying to build a CRM product and like provide security guidance along the way to help them, you know, in the design phase or in uh, you know, kind of like when they're uh, actually writing the code or like testing at the end of the thing. So you're definitely still doing like application security work, but it's definitely a lot more sort of embedded with the product team you're supporting. So I guess maybe what you're thinking of when you're saying product security is actually writing security features for the product. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's my interpretation. Like, so for instance, Neil, who, who had shared the same set, he, he, so Neil was on the podcast and we had talked about him before we started the podcast. So he was on before he, he works on the product security side at GitHub and, you know, he had the same sentiment. Like he got tired of doing these assessments over and over again. And it's funny because Seth, Seth, Seth and I worked at Fishnet when Neil passed through there for a couple months. And, yeah, and it was honestly like, maybe maybe two months that he lasted and he's like no nah, i don't want to do this and then jumped back to a company to an embedded team right mm -hmm. and it was for the same exact reason yeah. and now he you know like for instance he he wrote secure headers which is a gem that you can include in rails that um does like basically secure headers but i know that's obvious right but uh csp he spent a lot of time on csp which is like when you talked about moving the needle, it made me think of that because uh, Jim Manico, who we had on last week, 
uh, you know, we got it. We got into like how XSS is just this thing that just never goes away. And, yeah. you know, we kind of talked a little bit about how CSP though helps to mitigate that a bit since, you know, even if it's introduced, you have some protection there. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but the whole point is that <laughs> when, when Neil decided to jump off from doing that and to move the needle, that was something he focused a lot of his time on. And, uh, I mean, I think we're all better for it. Um, there are definitely enough people using secure headers to make it worthwhile. So, yeah, in, in general, I think that's definitely something we think about a lot. Like that's one of the things I really like about the way we approach security, uh, here currently at my car job is that it's really not just about like finding the vulnerabilities. It's also about kind of like, oh, how can I make this more and more transparent to someone? Like if they're using, say, like the paved road, which some of our peer teams are building, sort of the security paved road or the infrastructure paved road is sort of this concept at Netflix, which is kind of like, oh, we'll make it easy for you to do things a certain way. And then you'll get a bunch of other advantages by doing things that way. And security is just one of those things that will be super easy for you and you'll kind of get a bunch of things out of the box if you kind of go down the paved road and then just creating incentives for people to use the paved road. So what we do a lot of times is, you know, some of the assessments we're doing or bug bounty submissions we get or vulnerabilities we're finding by both manual and automated scanning and stuff like that, using that to find classes of issues that we can try to address with paved road solutions and things like that. Does that mindset come from like other departments and throughout Netflix? Cause I, I did notice there seems to be that sort of uh cause, okay. So Seth, we were at AWS reInvent, right? In, um, I don't know what year that was. What year was that? It was like two years ago. So that would have been what late 2016, I think. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the Netflix team was there and Seth and I were like sitting there watching blown away because each solution was, I mean, there was a solution for everything. Like one was automatic revoke, auto, automatic revo, re, revocation of AWS um, access keys based on usage, or maybe it was permissions. I might be getting that backwards. And I think we talked about it with, with Scott Piper when he was on. But then there was, um, there was like, uh, oh yeah. So if you are a developer and you want to um, have a have a site. You get um, an HTTPS certificate through one of these little uh, lemur. Yeah, yeah, through lemur. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yep. And then it's and then instead of doing the the like command line SSL, it just I guess what I'm saying is, and then that I guess that cert pushed Im- immediately into the elastic load balancers, and then you can use it. But I guess that seems like from an outsider perspective, just something that all security teams seem to share. Is this like idea? I mean, yeah, I, I don't general, know how true that is, but it seems like it. No, I think that is definitely true. In general, for us, it comes from the fact that as security, we really don't try to be gatekeepers. You know, like there isn't really a concept of a sign off or there isn't really a concept of a security approval here. Uh, we have a very sort of freedom and responsibility culture where, you know, as individuals, uh, folks have a lot of freedom on doing what they need to do to get their job done and what the right thing for the business is. But that also comes with sort of the responsibility of taking the accountability of what you're doing. Um, and then so as security teams, our job is really to like communicate the context of the impact of something. Right. As opposed to controlling what you can and cannot do. So we really, really focus on like to be able to one scale ourselves in an environment where things move so fast. It's really, really important for us to rely heavily on automation. And then two, it's really, really important for us to make the secure thing the easy thing to do, because otherwise we would never be able to get people to like adapt to these things, right? Because of the speed at which they want to move, our job is to really support them in you know doing things securely at that same speed. No, well, that's... Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I was just going to say that's exactly what kind of this discussion that we were having. I mean, you talk about like the platform as a service and the security, make it easier to secure things. I, that was one thing that Jim was really big on last week when we talked about him was, hey, eventually we're going to get to this state where security is the natural state of an application, right? There's always going to be mistakes. I mean, we're always going to have a job to actually like help people <laughs> and fix the code but it's going to become a lot harder to find things like a cross-site scripting or a SQL injection. We're already seeing people create these tools. And that's one thing that I've, I've been very impressed with coming out of uh, Netflix for sure. I, you know, 
I mean, you've got Lemur, you've got Security Monkey, you've got all this stuff that's been like pushed back to the community. And we don't see that from a ton of other organizations, right? Definitely like your Googles and some of your bigger uh, security teams do push a lot of that back as far as like open source tooling. But Netflix is is definitely on the forefront of like the cloud side of things as people are pushing into that and then just helping it helping make that automation piece so much easier. Uh, I mean, I, you know, and I think Scott's done the same thing. So, I mean, how involved are you on some of those projects then in creating those, those tools? Um, is it, you know, how much of that is your daily job versus just, you know, advising a, a development team? So for the, uh, for the application security team, we definitely spend, I want to say, like 50-50 of our time between automation versus, uh, you know, the partnership work that we call, which is sort of like, you know, uh, being more embedded with a particular uh, org or team. So we actually, even for some of the partnership work we do, we take a little bit of a different approach than most other places. So it's not like a put abstract model type of thing. We'll do sort of like a broader for the org you know, find, uh, yeah, I don't know, like top five things you can do to move uh, security forward, like for your uh, organization, as opposed to, you know, doing a put app threat model as much. Um, so, um, and then the automation stuff is really more focused on uh, inventorying, like what's out there in our environment or being able to run some vulnerability scanning and things like that on things that we find that are in, in our environment. And then being able to use that insight to, you know, find risky things that we should actually go and partner with. So really relying on our automation to be able to limit the number of people we have to interact with one-on-one um, and then reducing that to things that are like big risk and big impact. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that, that automation piece is obviously, you know, huge, especially when you're talking the scale of Netflix. Like I, I can only imagine the number of EC2 instances that you guys have <laughs> up at any one, any given time. And I, I would be surprised if you could give me an exact number on how many that is um, just because of, you know, the, the flow and how, you know, the, the capacity and everything that I, I imagine goes into it. Um, but along those lines, it really sounds like, you're creating automated tools to do almost a, what, what we're styling nowadays is threat hunting or bug hunting from a security perspective. Is, is that how you view it? Um, so that's been definitely the case uh, so far. Like we've definitely used the automation to do like as much sort of, you know, finding the vulnerabilities and things like that through the automation. Now we're actually shifting focus and thinking about like evolving our AppSec program to more focus on using the automation to find, you know, how off the paved road someone is. Because, you know, some of the things we have seen in the past is like, oh, if you're actually on the paved road, a lot of things kind of go away in terms of security risk. So, you know, a lot of, even if vulnerabilities exist, uh, they're mitigated or the risk is mitigated because of you being on the paved road. So we're thinking that there is a lot of value in also telling people when they're off the paved road and figuring out, you know, what part of the paved road components they need to be adopting. So definitely like the vulnerability identification piece is one part of it, but we're actually beginning to invest more and more in like this visibility piece of how off the security paved path are you and what security controls should you be uh, adopting and like trying to automate some of that. So that's kind of like the direction we're trying to uh, improve in uh, going forward. When you talk about the paved path, because I noticed uh, during your, and we'll actually let me post the link to your AppSec, um, sorry, your AppSec California 2018 talk. Let me put that in chat here. But um, so some of the languages mentioned were Java, Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. And when you say paved path, are like, so like for automation, obviously, if it's static analysis, that often relies on it. I mean, that's pretty, you know, language specific. So I didn't know if that's you, if, if that's one, one way you meant a paved road, like you, we recommend using these languages because we have support for them. Or if it's, you know, no, everybody just you, uses what's best for them. And we do primarily like, I don't know, dynamic testing, dependency scanning. I guess my question is, you know, like how to, well, for what you can tell us, how much does all that work? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, like that's a small part of it, you know, where it's like, oh, we have certain amount of coverage for uh, things when they are in certain languages. But then when I'm talking about some of the security behavior, I also mean things like, oh, easy app to app authentication or easy to use authorization frameworks or secure by default for, you know, being able to use uh, like secure communication or secure storage for uh, like using being able to use those services uh, like that that those are like the pave road components when I talk about like security pave road uh, okay I understand and uh, I am fixing up this link by the way because it's actually broken <laughs> for the video there we go cool I think I have the right I hopefully have the right link right now yeah so because again I you know it's like automation is a is a tough thing to like handle and <clears throat> I don't know. So, I mean, if I can ask, do you do any like sort of dependency scanning or is it, you know, like, you know, uh, just anything you could tell us about your basically, you know, how you would approach automation, even if it's at a high level and with nothing specific. Um, yeah, definitely. So, for example, uh, you know, we picked like the few languages that are um, that are common in our ecosystem and then being able to do sort of continuous like repo scanning for uh, using maybe more the I, I think we've had more success with sort of like smart code grep stuff as opposed to actual static analysis. So like that stuff has worked better for us. And then uh, we have sort of like reviewing those findings is sort of part of our on-call process. So, uh, you know, we kind of like continuously are scanning repositories for uh, like source code scanning stuff in those languages that we care about the most. And then uh, reviewing those findings and actually like finding uh, filing tickets against like what is actually a bug from that. And that that is sort of integrated into our on-call process or doing, say, dynamic scanning on new externally available domains that are popping up uh, in our ecosystem. Uh, so if someone like stood up a site for doing like a marketing for a new original or something like that, then making sure that we're doing sort of like the low hanging fruit testing for that site. Uh, with say dynamic app scanning and stuff like that, or we, you know, like doing, uh, looking for secrets and code and making sure that that's not ending up. So being able to have a, you know, really a lot of it is about, you know, building the visibility and the automation is really focused on, uh, you know, being able to build that visibility and like use that uh, for things like this. And so if um, like for <clears throat> at GitHub, we have a similar pretty similar process as a matter of fact, but you know, like it's no secret that we're operating on primarily right now, monolith. Right. But for, as far as I understand with Netflix and <clears throat> I guess where I'm going with this is with Netflix, I'd imagine you have a pl plenty of repos that need to be continuously scanned. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm always curious how folks go about um, getting like in terms of asset inventory, and just getting a, a grip on what needs to be, you know, like what needs to be plugged into and what needs to be reviewed, you know, is it a, we rely on a process where developers come to us or something else, maybe more automated. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Um, so we have a pretty, like, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Spinnaker. So Spinnaker is uh, open source, uh, but it's basically like our CICD uh, product that, uh, you know, it's part of the infrastructure paved road for, uh, uh, releasing things here at Netflix. So we really rely heavily on developer productivity to get that insight because, you know, again, like we may be missing some things here and there because of that, because, you know, if you're not releasing through the paved road, then we may not know about you. But then it's like, if you're releasing through the paved road, we sort of hook into the, uh, you know, like the continuous integration paved road to be able to find out uh, about things. So really rely heavily on like our dev insights and our productivity uh, tooling for that stuff. And it, it helps us a lot that we are able to sort of hitch the security wagon to the developer productivity wagon because that's a strong story today uh, for us. So most of the code is then pushing through Spinnaker and that's the easier way to actually identify it. I, like, I, 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 like both of you, right? Like just exactly what Jim said last week is you're kind of in this like, special wonderful state when it comes to application <laughs> security and that's what i'm like I'm, I'm i'm trying to talk to outside of that is that 
um, like I go into a lot of organizations and I mean, if, if they can, if they have a handle on all the code from their organization that's in GitHub, right. Or in Git, they are doing well. Um, and so, so my question to you is when like all of your identification of this code then runs through the, the CI CD pipeline. And then, and that's because you've made that the easiest path to promote something into production. Is that the case? Yeah, I think that that definitely helps. And I will, I agree with you that doing security in sort of like the cloud environment is definitely the easy mode, right? Because you can rely on all of these like cloud primitives and like the cloud infrastructure stuff to be able to answer some of these questions. And it becomes a lot harder in a more traditional environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've gone to the, the, the case at times where it's almost like you push everyone through a proxy and make them accept your SSL certificate. So then you can sniff out exactly where they're going and where they're pushing code to, right? I, I mean, because there there isn't identification for a lot of that, um, especially when you talk about o- older organizations, like big banks and things like that. I started my, my career at, you know, at, at a bank here in, in Utah and man, that code was everywhere. I mean, if you remember the old like CVS and SVN days, and it was just awful. Uh, And there was, you know, there was no way to actually get half of it, right? We had old um, COBOL code that there was no code that existed. All they had was the binary. So to patch it, they would go in and patch the binary that was running on the mainframe, uh, try to do a security review on that, right? It was just this massive, massive problem. but so, I mean, like what suggestions that w- would you have for someone that's not in your environment to push them that direction? I think the thing that helped, that has helped us, like obviously like we still, I'm sure like in our environment have things that we may not know about because they're not on the paved road. But instead of, you know, it being the stick of like, you have to get to the paved road, make it more of a carrot where it's like, oh, you get all of this telemetry and all of this other stuff for free if you're you know, doing the paper solution, or you don't have to fi- figure out how to like manage your AWS instances, Spinnaker will do all of that for you. And it's going to be like, you know, abstracted away for you, for you to be able to do this stuff easily, right? So it's the thing where it's like making, uh, you know, making sort of the standard ways, the easier ways, as opposed to, uh, you know, that you have to do it probably works better. Uh, because in no, that that's- case, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, no, that, that, that's, that's really good advice. Uh, you know, just like, spend your cycles rather than checking that, you know, a, a weird compliance box. But if you've got the cycles to build out a framework or, a, you know, a, a monolith or whatever, like an application framework that everyone can use that already has the security stuff built into it and makes it easier for them to deploy, I think that developers will naturally migrate that direction. Um, I mean, Ken, what do you guys do at GitHub? Sorry, we're like bouncing around, but. Oh, no, yeah. Well, and to go back to, um, and just to step back for a second, like, I think when when Seth and Jim were talking about it kind of being like almost a utopia in terms of security, <laughs> you know, application yeah. security, I think what they, what they, what they're pointing to is, like the, I guess culture funding, um, cause funding obviously like, so culture and funding, I think are probably pretty important. Um, obviously you need to have the funding for a team and for the activities that you're going to do, um, and the software you need to get, whatever the case is, if you need to build it, you need the time for it. And then the other piece being like culture, which a lot of what, you know, you've talked about tonight to me falls pr- pretty, pretty, uh, pretty easily within that that culture bucket, right? Like it's, it's making things low friction. It's making it sort of a, just easy for developers to, to build something that is well-developed slash secure because secure, you know, being well-developed is being secure. Um, So I think that that's what they sort of mean. You know, Seth, I'm sorry, what what was your question before (laughs) I go off and ask another set of questions? Oh, I don't even remember now. Because um, <laughs> I have a whole set of questions, but yeah. It, it had to do with like offering the carrot or offering like a, um, like like the paved road, paved road that Asta's t- talking about. Um, the, uh, like, do you have something at GitHub that you offer your developers along those same lines, right? Frameworks and other other things that already have security built in that that's the direction that they go naturally, or is it more of a, you know, 
stick, like Asta is saying, that they can't release to production until something is secure or signed off on. It's a weird, it's actually none of those things. It's kind of a weird, like for us, it's weird because it's weird. I say weird, it's it's unusual. That's why I'm calling it weird. It's not like crazy. It's it's unusual. And it's that um, typically developers want to come to us for a second set of eyes because they're, they don't want to put something out there that's going to be insecure. And, you know, we all, while we do have the monolith, just like you, Asta and your group, we've got other apps that power the business and, you know, like nobody wants to be the one that puts out code that <laughs> causes a breach. Right. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I mean, there are some processes, like if you want to, you know, go external, sure. Security is a part of that, but like, but from what I've experienced, it's just more they want that second set of eyes. So um, I don't know. It's like so, a, so again, it's, so again it's, it's it's a utopia where the developers come to you, <laughs> or you you have all the tools and money that you need to secure. Yeah, okay, I got it. I got well, it. I'll say this: there, there, it is known within the engineering teams. Like if you're going to put a new app online, or if you're going to do a major feature request, you should open a review. The other thing is too is to to kind of talk to, to kind of speak to what Asta is saying. Like there there is a, a scanning mechanism that you can plug into your repo, and, and often people want that just for that like second set of eyes that like automated test coverage basically. Because if one if there's one thing we I think we all on this call uh, or on this podcast realize it's like de- developers do love automated tests. <laughs> Yeah, and we don't. Uh, yeah, we don't do enough support of that generally from the community, right? Like that—that that was one of my talks that I had previously, right? Talking about security unit tests, and it, I mean, it sounds like that's a lot of what the automation piece is, Asta, that you you're doing at Netflix is. No, actually, oh. for us, really, like a lot of the automation, what we're trying to do is like, you know, how can we make it more and more transparent to the developers? We actually haven't okay. explored as much of the, you know. Uh, kind of like making it embedded where they can write the tests themselves and that sort of stuff. We we have wanted to invest in that area, but we haven't been able to yet because uh, mm-hmm. it's like in general, we are definitely always very cautious about when we're asking for the developer's time and, you know, increasing the cognitive load on the developer. And I think that's like a very unique way of thinking about it here is the, you know, how much can we do where it can be transparent to them or it can be easy and where they don't have to think about security too much and it sort of just happens. Uh, yeah. So we're more in that mode, but I definitely want to explore sort of like the automation tests coverage stuff uh, being a part of, you know, their testing and all of that. Like we, we haven't really leaned into that as much. Okay. No, that's a, I mean, it's definitely kind of a new and emerging area, right? I've, you know, since I've talked about it, I've seen a couple other talks that have popped up um, at, you know, B-sides and other places about like developers that are coming from the QA side that are talking more about introducing payloads and security payloads into the test frameworks rather than trusting in some of the dynamic tests that we, we have a tendency to rely on, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, I, Ken, I know you had some other questions, so I'm going to let you jump in before I, you know, spin off on that direction. Yeah, no, actually, before I get to, because one of the questions I was going, I, I plan on asking, because we, anybody that's, who leads a program, it's always helpful, because we've got a, we've actually got a few people, one who just asked a question, which I'll get to, uh, but we have a few listeners who, they're regularly on, and they're actively trying to build um, AppSec programs, and they're trying to do they're trying to get to the point that you're at. Right. Um, and so like, you know, one of the questions I'll end up asking is, you know, like if you were to give advice for like a 30 or 60 day kind of program, like what to focus on to get going, that would be something. But before we get to that, um, question was, uh, so with an org of your size, with a large number of apps, um, how do you track the stat, the, the status of past current, and future security efforts. Now, I'm not sure if security efforts means like we want to do training or we want to do um, like a full-on review or something like that. But you know, uh, I guess it's open to a little bit of interpretation there. I see. Yeah. So I think in terms of like security efforts, there can be multiple things, right? So in terms of like the automation, we're trying to kind of like uh, measure coverage on. Okay, these are the repos we're scanning. Uh, and these are the repos we're not scanning sort of thing. Or, you know, this falls under languages where we do have automated scanning for. Um, so 
measuring sort of like the, oh, if this is externally accessible, then we are running. So think about it as like the different capabilities you have and then, you know, different parts of your ecosystem, what are the capabilities that are deployed in that part of the ecosystem? And then uh, the partnership being sort of like the most white glove, which we do for the minimal set of people, right? So if you're doing something really like, so let's say if you're on an infrastructure team, anything you do security related is going to have a big downstream impact, right? So it is high impact for us to work with you. Uh, so we would sort of prioritize the partnership work for those areas. Or if we will see, say, like Bhagwani bugs from a certain thing, uh, for a certain app kind of like ongoing, we'll see that, oh, there's a larger problem here. Let's go work with them and like figure it out. That'll be something that'll like ramp up and ramp down. So I think that white glove piece is the only one where it's sort of more ad hoc, but we're trying to think of how can we actually like track that and measure that more. But for the automation stuff, like I, I think our, you know, in general security metrics is a hard thing. And that's a thing we're working on, like how can we measure that better? But that's the approach we're taking is, you know, what coverage do we have for what capabilities we provide on different parts of the ecosystem? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think for for us, we use like pro- project boards and like GitHub issues and, and things like that. Obviously, it's all like GitHub <laughs> focused, right? Yeah. So we have to dog food uh, that. But uh, but yeah, like that's 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 interesting. Um, so. On that note, uh, one of the things I wanted to I wanted to ask you was with regards to bug bounty. Since you brought it up, um, with bug bounty, okay. So we've had we've had a few different like views on this, um, but it seems like so both Seth and I are a few. Like I'm sure you're part of a few different Slack channels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all are at this point. We mm-hmm. all have too much Slack, but it always comes up um, at least pretty often. Hey bug bounty versus paying for an assessment and like there there's kind of a few schools of thought there ones like um it isn't like it you know one or the other it's it's one does they do different things and they're good for augmenting the other is like yes bug bounty uh is fine and uh, assessments cover compliance and another one is totally the opposite which is like bug bounty is just I don't, I don't feel like this is something Netflix or GitHub or any kind of like company like that falls under. Cause I think that the programs are pretty visible and they have a lot of people contributing, mm-hmm. but certainly like smaller companies, I've seen this where they're like, Oh, bug bounty is garbage. We only get garbage submissions. It eats up a lot of our time. It doesn't help, et cetera. So how has the bug bounty from your perspective been, uh, for, for you? I mean, has that been a positive influence? Um, obviously um, you're still doing it. So. Yeah, no, yeah, for us, definitely, you know, like we ran a private program for a good 18 months before we went public. And we were, you know, definitely uh, receiving a lot of things that were helping us find focus areas or find, you know, uh, kind of systemic issues in some places, or even just get coverage on some sort of external uh, internet facing applications and things like that. So it's been useful for us, definitely, from that standpoint. Uh, when you go from private to public, definitely, you know, the signal to noise ratio changes. That's just something you go in with eyes wide open, understanding that. But I think the program has continued to be useful for us. Um, I'm not 100% sort of sold on sort of the incremental advantage of going from private to public, though, um, just because I think it has sort of opened up like more people in the world are able to submit things to our program, which is great. So I think that's definitely useful. But like in terms of sort of like the volume of bugs and things like that, I I feel like you definitely have to keep doing, you know, things to keep people engaged, maybe sort of like, you know, more uh, focused, like researcher engagement is definitely something you have to pay attention to ongoing, even though if you have a public program, it definitely does not self-sustain. Um, And uh, to the question of, you know, one or the other, I'm definitely in the first group, which is sort of like they augment each other. It's definitely not a one or the other. Uh, It's different coverage you're getting from both of those things. And what is the difference between, for those who aren't familiar, what is the difference between a private and a public bug bounty um, program through, and I I believe this is through bug crowd? Uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the private program basically just means that, you know, we invited like top whatever number of researchers from the platform to participate in the program. So in that case, instead of just accepting reports from like anybody on the face of the planet, you're just, 
you know, inviting researchers that you know have submitted good bugs to other uh, programs and that that sort of gives you some sort of like, a, you know, screening process, uh, if you may, uh, for who's submitting to your program. Uh, but we always, we ran a responsible disclosure uh, program through our uh, just main website uh, that people could still submit bugs to us. So we wanted to standardize all of that through our bug bounty. So a private program is basically invite only, and then a public program is anybody can submit a bug to it. The invite only sounds like a like a good proposition. I mean, with us, like we we get the same, um, like I don't know how how much I'm supposed to say, but. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Well, I will say all that. All yeah. of it. Let's say all of it. I, I think it wouldn't hurt to say that. For, yeah, exactly. For us, um, like when we, so for the, actually, you know what? No, I can say this because it's actually, it's actually the metrics are there on our, on our bug bounty page. Uh, we have write-ups of the, the findings, but what I've noticed in the, uh, what I've been there for uh, almost a year. So actually in less than a few weeks, a year, um, is that we, for the really good, or really um, high impact and sort of complex submissions, it's uh, it's this, it's typically the same group of people, at least from what I've noticed. Um, within a certain time range, like I have noticed on the bug bounty that we've posted, that there are people that I've you know hadn't seen submit, obviously you know, since I've been there, um, but they were there. They were submitting before I came on. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I could totally see how that just limiting that to a certain specific set of people is, is beneficial. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you always have the top researchers in your program that are just, you know, either one, they understand your ecosystem, so it's worth their time to invest more time. So really, like, as the company who wants more researcher engagement, it's your job to figure out, like, how can you kind of create that incentive for more and more researchers to come participate in your program? That's a, I, I mean, that's a good point to, to make, especially to those people that are building new programs, right? Uh, I, I definitely see the, like, like both of you are saying that there is the, the, you know, both sides of the coin, there's the assessments that you pay for that are very scoped in nature, right? It's, I want you to take a code review and I want you to do a dynamic assessment or whatever on this, you know, small piece of our infrastructure or our, our code. Whereas the bug bounty widens that view. It gives, you know, more of a, this is how, the application acts overall within our infrastructure. So there may be other bugs that pop up because of the interactions that it has with other pieces of our code. Um, so there, there, there's two different ways to, to you know, identify bugs and to quash those threats that come out of it. Um, but for those people that are creating a program, it's the, the thing that I'm taking out of what both of you are saying is that there, there has to be somewhat cultured, right? You have to maintain your relationships and you have to keep building the, or you have to maintain the relationships with those researchers in order to keep those bugs coming along. Um, otherwise they, they just stop. Is that what you've seen in the past, Asta? Uh, yeah, they, they do get to a point of diminishing return, right? Like, you know, if they will find a new application, they'll be able to sort of, you know, hammer on it, find a standard set of bugs that they look for everywhere. But it's like, as applications get better, like from the researcher standpoint, maybe you can, you know, give them more information or give them sort of like more targeted things for what you want them to test and things like that. Unless you do that, it's not worth their time to keep investing in your app that they've already spent a certain amount of time on, right? Yeah, yeah, which makes sense. I, I mean, that's that's what I've always struggled with, with in the bug bounties that I've participated in is the the time to payout ratio, right? It's much easier for me as an established, you know, application security person to go run an assessment for a company and actually get the scope and do everything like I've done in the past. Uh, whereas if I'm just like poking in at, at Netflix, say for two hours, there's no guarantee that I'm going to find anything uh, because I don't know it. Right? I have to invest a certain amount of time, and then I'm also competing with those people that have already invested that time when anything new pops up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there, there, there's, there are barriers to entry, I think on both of those sides. Um, but it's interesting that you do have to maintain that relationship that you do have to provide at least more information or other incentives to keep them coming back. Otherwise they disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, how many of those researchers would you say um, are ones that have been 
in the private bounty that moved to the public bounty and are still around, is that a is that a large number or have you seen a shift in um, the the valid bug reports or the big bug reports changing from the public re- or the private researchers to the public researchers? No, I'll definitely say that it's like, you know, the researchers that had been active in the, our program have mostly like, I don't think going public has affected them being engaged in the program at all. Uh, uh, but definitely the signal to noise ratio has changed in terms of like the amount of bugs that we receive and how many of that is valid. How many people submit, you know, uh, uh, there's no HTTP only on this cookie. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No amount of writing a clear scope document can change that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. I, I see all those, like, these are all out of scope on every single bug bounty that I'm in. And, I know they still get those. I, yeah. I know that people still submit them. So it's it's the cost of running a program. So how many people do you have that are dedicated to running the bug bounty program? Uh, so we don't really have sort of like dedicated people running bug bounty program. It's sort of like the part of our on-call and interrupt budget for okay. the team. Uh, we do yeah. use triage services from our bug bounty platform to sort of do the first level triage. Yeah, and I, I think most of those, the big companies use utilize the triage, right, from Bug Crowd or Hacker One or whoever to make sure that those, the bugs that get passed to you are at least valid, right, or at least have been checked. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I, that helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know Jason would talk about that too. Jason Haddix, we've had him on as well. Um, you know about how and how that all works, and you know at some point it may be interesting to talk to him some more about that. Um, well, good. Uh, I was going to ask if, uh, if it's okay, Seth, um, you know, I was going to ask you how you cultivate a good relationship with these researchers. Like, cause we've talked a lot about culture with developers, but I think if, you know, there's certainly an aspect of cultivating relationship with researchers for bug bounties, like, you know, how does that, what's your approach there? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things actually like that we, you know, sort of context sharing is like a big tenant here at Netflix. So we actually bring that in our interactions with the researcher community as well. So really one reason for us to run the private program for a long time was also to be able to sort of smooth out all the kinks and make it so that researchers would have a good experience playing in our program. So some of the things being... For example, if we're saying a certain bug is a certain impact, providing as much context as possible on how we got to that. You know, like here's kind of like all the background on how we got to a certain decision on something being out of scope or something being, you know, a lower impact or something like that. So even when we're receiving bugs that may not be valid, we do a lot of sort of, you know, feedback and training for our triage engineers to make sure that, you know, there's a certain tone and certain uh, kind of like context sharing that's happening when they're communicating with researchers on the Netflix program or, you know, working really closely with researchers if they've had cases where they want to do, you know, coordinated disclosure for things if they found something on the Netflix product or, you know, just being kind of like very diligent about, you know, providing updates and uh, things like that to researchers uh, and, really like just communication and context sharing, I think goes a long way. So kind of like if if, to, to, well, to give people more context on that, (laughs) on that. Um, So would that be, so would an example of that be like, um, Hey, uh, you're marking this as a duplicate. Why, you know, and then you would maybe say, Oh, we, this is a known issue or like that we found internally and are working on it or, Something along those lines? Yeah, that or, for example, say you submitted something and then that's, you know, like a risk accepted or something like that on our, uh, on our end. We would give them enough context on, oh, here are the mitigating controls we have in place that make it okay for us to accept that risk here. Or, um, you know, like, I don't think it's a P1, but a P2 because of these reasons. Yeah, and, you know, like, one thing... It's it's funny because like when you give that context, it it's it's kind of nice because you almost like get, you kind of can weed out the 
how do I say this nicely? The people you don't <laughs> want to interact with, <laughs> you pretty much, because you know, the people that are like, you want to work with, they'll pretty quickly be like, okay, oh, that's reasonable. That makes sense. Or, you know, Hey, maybe if I disagree, but like, you know, overall I get, it. and then there's the people that are just like, yeah, they like, and it's almost kind of good. Cause you're like, okay, I found the crazy person. I mean, that's <laughs> not, maybe not the nicest way to say it, but you know, the person that's just going to go like, go off, go off on tangents and, and it just, it's not rational and won't take what you're, and you know, in any program you're going to, you're going to have like, that's open to the world. You're going to have that kind of stuff. But, um, I, I, I mean, for us, it's pretty few and far between, but yeah. yeah, most researchers come in with good intent, I think. And it's like, if you are trying to like, if you treat them that way, and if you sort of make sure that they are understanding where you're coming from ever, like, you know, as human beings, most people are pretty reasonable, like food now. Yeah, most, and that's what we found. Most, most are, it's just once in a great while you get that person that you're like, okay, all right. We've been tried to be reasonable, reasonable and like that. Yeah. So definitely, definitely happens, but, um, cool. Um, yeah. So back to the looping back to the, uh, original, like if I'm, if I'm coming into an organization, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of things that you you can do between like asset um, asset inventory, or you could focus on training, or you could focus on you know assessments or whatever the case is. Like, if you're coming in and you're starting a program from the ground floor, um, what what's sort of your like holistic approach to getting an AppSec program off the ground? Yeah, I'll definitely say like asset inventory is pretty important. I will say it's definitely among like the top three of things you should think about. Um, I wasn't here when this program was started, uh, but I've heard from folks that were here uh, in terms of sort of like, you know, building those relationships and socializing yourself as a resource that's available is really important. So, you know, just going and, you know, letting people know that you're here and here are the services you can provide for them so they know to reach out to you when they have something that, like, smells funny to them. And then I think what will happen is, you know, if you're sort of trying to bootstrap a AppSec program, a lot of times what will happen is you'll just come up with basic platform security services that should be available to avoid a lot of these bugs. Um, you know, like investing in building out those things will definitely be very, very like useful if you get that sort of out of the way early on, because then you're not just the person pointing out a problem. You actually have solutions that you can send people to, to solve those problems. So, you know, like having authentication frameworks or, you know, ways to, uh, you know, store secrets securely and all of that sort of stuff, like having your story together on those sort of building blocks of security is definitely very useful. So getting a grip on what's, what's all um, in development or been developed rather, or both um, building relationships with, uh, with de developers. I'd imagine at some point too, um, you, Cause I've never had to, well, actually that's not true. Once I did, but like one thing I'm always curious about is, and especially recently, cause this has come up with other people is like, how do you, I mean, this isn't something you specifically have to answer. I'm just trying to think of like a way to make the case for more resources, right? Like when you're one person, I, it's crazy to me that because I and, and by the way, in the couple cases I'm talking about, they, these are companies that are they're like entirely an online presence and yeah. there's one AppSec person. And so when you talk about relationships, it starts to make me think about like m making relationships with the folks that can help you, like with your boss and other departments and kind of give you that justification for um, or not justification, but the. Um, yeah, the go ahead to, to to hire more people. I I will definitely say like you should probably walk into an organization that like if you really want to do security work, you should probably walk into an organization that's bought into sort of like why they need security. It's I don't know like I personally think that it's a losing battle where you if you go in and like nobody understands why they hired you or like why they may need more security people. Well, no, we've, we've had actually, that echoes almost exactly a statement I know I've made on this podcast before. And Seth and we, I forget who we were talking to, but we're like, if you don't, it's kind of weird because if you don't, if you 
it's what you said. There are so many, <laughs> there are so many good places to work that are bought into security. And this is like, especially in application security, it's not exactly a field where there's a ton of people doing it. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, there are options there. So it, it does always feel weird, but you know, there, there are those edge cases where people are like, no, I like the company and the people are good. It's just, they don't put their money into AppSec. They put their money into uh, traditional network related security. They put their money into, you know, GRC, GRC being a bigger slice of the pie for whatever yeah. reason. And so I'm, you know, it's just something that's been going through my mind. But yeah, uh, relationship Are you talking about like demonstrating value of the AppSec program? Is that where you're getting at? I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is, um, I guess, because <laughs> you had said relationship building. So maybe just think of like maybe building enough relationships to convince people to let you hire. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I so that everyone's no like, I need help from the AppSec team. Please let them hire more people. <laughs> yeah, kind well, of. It, it, but, but that is the case, right? I mean, we had Justin on a couple uh, weeks ago um, who's actually building out a program for a small startup, right? And that that's exactly what he's trying to do. I, I mean, we talked about, you know, identifying developers that are interested in security, number one, right? That become their security champions. But until those those people have been identified, it, it it's a slog, right? To figure out where should I spend my time so that I affect some sort of change. I'm useful to the organization, but my boss still thinks I'm doing something effective and then the organization and like, it, it's, a, it's a fine line to walk. Um, I know, you know, he seems to be doing okay over where he's at. We'll have him on again, but it's like that, that, that's, that's the kind of advice that I don't necessarily want to push somebody like him into saying, Hey, guess what? You should just go find another job. Right. Because there is, they've obviously hired him. They've got a couple security people and somebody has to bootstrap it. Right. So why not have it be someone that's passionate about, passionate about application security, so, but from what you're saying, you're, um, you're saying that, uh, just so that I, I make sure that I'm getting it right. The first thing is uh, that we identify the assets and then to start building those relationships. Is that yeah, correct? I, yeah, that definitely. And also I'm not saying that like, go, don't go work somewhere where they don't have a ton of money to do security stuff. Like that's not what I'm getting at. I'm that, that's getting Ken at. and the GitHub utopia. <laughs> so just, kind of is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't about money either. It was more of what, what Asta was saying, which is like you, like you, I guess, cause yes, there are situations where I, I mean, joking aside, I can't just be like, Oh, great. Get another job. Cause they want to work there. But Believe me, my first go-to is get another job, like go somewhere where they've already bought into security. Like you don't want to do that uphill battle, but, or, you know, have to go with that uphill battle. So at uh, the end of the day, yeah. our job is to reduce risk for the business, right? So it's like, if the business is at a point where they can't afford to have that much risk and they only need one security person to like, I don't know, like reduce a minuscule amount of risk, then maybe that's the right call for where they are today. Right. So you probably at that point walk in and say, okay, here are the things that matter the most. Like if you only have one person, you should focus on just these things. And that's, you just prioritize and you say, that's all we're going to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's realistic about setting expectations. Um, you know, this is what I'm going to be able to accomplish when I only have one person, I have 40 hours a week, right. To actually move through this and I'm supporting 150 developers. Right? There's only so much that you can get to. Um, you know, I always talk about doing some sort of a threat model or a risk analysis of of the company itself as well, right? You know, hey, Netflix, I mean, the amount of, you know, targets that are on your back are just huge. But some small startup, uh, realistically, it doesn't make, them, make, make a lot of sense for them to spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on an application security program when they haven't figured out how to, you know, manage. Wow, we've got two Austas. Fine. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're fine. Um, but it doesn't make sense to um, push application security over everything else when maybe they're a loan processor and they need more like financial controls. Uh, so I, I think that's where you're, where what you're getting at is the business itself has to make the case or has to be supportive of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah, no, I've, I've, 
Yeah. And by no, by the way, no worries. We can hear you. We just can't <laughs> see you. So yeah. don't, don't stress that at all. Um, yeah, you know, there's somebody in mind I was just thinking about that I'd like to have on the show to, to kind of talk about that whole thing. So that's a different, that's just a mental note that I need to make. But um, yeah, uh, no, and actually, by the way, like if you if you have a, so like if you have a manager that's what you said, Asta, if you have a manager like that, that says that, like we need to manage expectations, you know, that's a good manager to work for. And the reason I say that is, at um so we did this uh we did this bug bounty event in um hacker one event in um vegas and we were on the rooftop talking about after the event talking about um some of the things that make the program successful and i was telling my manager who i consider to be an amazing manager greg osa um to me as an out as you know having been an outsider coming in i think the the most important thing that i noticed was setting expectations like here we're not going to, we can't review every line of code. Here's what we can do and being very specific. And that prevents a lot of things that, that prevents, that prevents burnout, that prevents um, prioritizing things that shouldn't be a priority, but it also gives a good, uh, you know, like here, here's realistically the amount of people that we need to hire given what you want, which mm -hmm. is what you're saying. And, and like I said, it, if you hear a if you hear a manager talk like that, like that's a good manager, you should want to work for them. So <laughs> sounds good. I can use this in my recruiting pitch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, well, we hit an hour. See, it yeah, went by really see? quick. Yeah, you were. I was. You were right. I was definitely like one hour sounds like a long time, but <sighs> yeah, it does. But it's because we're so engaging, right? That's. <laughs> <you know. laughs> No, it's easy, right? We just ask you questions about you and you should be able to answer. So. <laughs> yeah, hopefully hopefully it's not too stressful. We've had a couple of people on that are, you know, they get stressed out about it, but um, you've, yeah. you, you've been great, great, great to talk to. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And, you know, like since we're coming to the, uh, to about the close of the show, um, you know, one thing we always uh, like to, because, well, I mean, first of all, you're, you're helping to organize the OWASP AppSec USA. You're one of the organizers of OWASP AppSec USA, which is, uh, for those who don't know, it's in San Jose, uh, October, I think the week through 8th through 12th, I want to say. That's right. And the training is on the, is the first two days of that week, and then the conference is the remaining portion of the week. Yes. Uh, the conference is 11 12. Yeah. Conference is, is Thursday, Friday. Trainings run Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There's some tour and some three day, right? Awesome. So um yeah, like anything that you would like to to mention to people about OWASP AppSec USA coming up? Yeah, so definitely I did want to mention like this year, uh, the focus uh, for the program for AppSec USA is security through enablement. So a lot of it is around, you know, like how do we make it easy for developers to do security and how do we build things that make it easy for developers to build secure products as opposed to, oh, I found this one thing that's really terrible, so haha. Um, so it's actually kind of like caters to both uh, security engineers as well as developers that are interested in security. Um, so if you don't already have a ticket, I would encourage you to go buy one and come attend the conference um, and then check out Seth's trading as well. So that's one really cool. So. Uh, yeah, I hope to see a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast at the conference. Come say hi. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Come say hi to Ostas. Come say hi to us as well. Uh, you know, Ken and I will be there at least, you know, the training days um, and during the conference, right? So we'll be around. Uh, we'll have stickers, Right, Ken? And yeah, we'll have stickers. I brought them to DEF CON and then we never had time to actually, I didn't have time to pass them out because I was only there for like 48 hours and just doing the event and left. Yeah. So, uh, but otherwise, I, I mean, Asta, it's, it, you know, it's great to have you like actually organizing the conference and, you know, helping out with that. We know what's, a, we know that's a huge effort, especially with a nationwide conference like that, the way that OWASP does that and passes it around to different, you know, local OWASP chapters, it's not necessarily an easy thing. So kudos for putting that on and, you know, let us know if there's anything else that we can do to help promote that or help, you know, help once we get down there to, to make sure the event comes off well. 
Sounds great. Thank you so much. Are you speaking anywhere that you would like us to, to mention? Um, yes, I'll be speaking later this year at the Swiss Cyberstorm at the end of October uh, for anyone that's in the EU or is going to be in Switzerland for that. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're going to be around for that. I'll, call, I'll paste the link because I actually have the link for that um, up and I'll paste it in chat so people can. Where? where oh, it's in. What side of Switzerland is that? Uh, no, sorry. I'm now like looking at maps to see where in Switzerland. <laughs> I was there a couple, like a year and a half ago, and uh, it was on the uh, west side of Switzerland. It was pretty nice, pretty amazing. Uh, let's see. That's going to be a fun trip for you. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, let's see. Oh, I lost the chat. Sorry. So, but yeah, so put before- it in there. Yeah, before we let you go, you know, any last minute like thoughts on, you know, or advice for people on, you know, building a program or, you know, starting out in the industry? Any last minute thoughts? I think one of the things that's great about our community is there's all of these people solving the exact same problems at all the different places. So just please go talk to folks. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. There's so much to learn from the community. Cool. Good. Well, yeah, thanks thanks once again, right? It's it's always great to have, you know, people on that I've interacted with in the past that I, you know, we you know, finally make some connections and it'll be good to see you in San Jose in a, in a month or so. Um, Ken, did you have any other final thoughts that you wanted to talk through? Uh, no, just, uh, uh, well, I guess I, w- I was going to mention, um, so I'll be speaking at, you're going to be doing a workshop and in Cactus Con in September, I'll be speaking at Cactus Con with Chris Gates, uh, Carnal Loadage on Twitter, uh, talking about hacking AWS stuff. Uh, we, I finally booked my travel. I know you're about to book your travel for AppSec Day in Melbourne, Australia. And then uh, you already mentioned AppSec USA. So those are the things that we got going on. And I swear at some point we will come up with like some t-shirts and uh, figure that out. But yeah. Not right now. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> Soon. Soon. That's it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks again, Asta. Uh, don't jump yeah. off. You know, stay on for a minute uh, after we stop the broadcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Ken, who's our guest next week? I think Matt Tassaro, I want to say. Let me see here. It's a good question. Yes, it's Matt Tassaro from uh, Owasp. Matt's an- yeah, and that's another OWASP, great OWASP. I think he's he's on the board right now, so that should be another interesting one, and we can talk to him about AppSec USA even more. Cool. Awesome. I'm waving, guys. Right. <laughs> Your avatar is waving. Yes. Thanks, Asta. All right. Thanks again. Have a good night.